Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, uh, and it's always a pleasure to have an audience to talk to, and uh, always a pleasure to talk about Iran. Uh, what I'm going to talk about today is basically uh, the what I would call the democracy movement that first emerged in Iran in 1997 and was very strong for several years, uh, but then petered out in the early part of this decade and uh, conclusively self-destructed last summer in the June 2005 elections that brought the current president to power, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. Um, this was a, a very interesting movement uh, to follow for a political scientist. Uh, it was very strong and powerful. Uh, most observers, almost all observers, at least in the beginning, thought that it had a good shot at bringing democracy to Iran. But in the end, it collapsed. So uh, what it you know, looked at in, in more conceptual or theoretical uh, terms, we can say that uh, it was a, a pro-democracy movement that initiated a democratic transition, a transition to democracy, but one that failed. And uh, I mean, in fact, most of the literature on democracy has focused, almost all of it is focused on cases where democratic transitions succeeded but, of course, you really need to look at the other half of the story, ones that failed, to get a, a full understanding and appreciation of the dynamics of these kinds of movements. So Iran is an, an interesting and important, though certainly very sad, case uh, of a democratic transition movement that failed. And, and that's really the perspective in which I'm going to be looking at it and talking about it in my talk today. So I'm going to begin by very quickly uh, just sort of sketching out uh, what played out in Iran from 1997 on. Uh, just to sort of fill in the details. And then secondly, give my explanation for why this movement failed. And then thirdly, I'm going to uh, just talk briefly about uh, the implications that the failure of this movement has for uh, our you know, more conceptual or theoretical understanding of democratization. So in fact, I'm not really going to be talking about the prospects for democracy in Iran. I decided to cut that out of my talk, and I hope Bill doesn't mind too much. Um, I'm going to talk somewhat. Well, that, that's the thing. The prospects are just bleak, and I don't want to be depressing. It would be bad to our roof to, to talk about that kind of thing, so I'm going to talk more at a conceptual level. Okay, so first of all, uh, the rise and fall of the pro-democracy movement in Iran. Uh, Khatami, President Khatami, who was elected in May 1997 and, and served until uh, the summer of 2005, last summer, was the candidate of a very interesting movement, uh, which had been deeply involved in the Iranian Revolution since the very beginning and had gone through very interesting changes. Uh, we can call this the reformist movement. That's the most common term used for it in recent years. These were people who were deeply involved in carrying out the revolution in 1978, 1979. They were, for the most part, people in their earlier mid-20s at that time and were deeply involved uh, at the street level and to some extent uh, at a, a higher level in the revolution itself. Uh, these are people who were behind the seizure of the U.S. Embassy in November 1979. They were extremely radical, obviously, at the time, uh, extremely anti-American. Um, throughout the 1980s, they were very close to the, the government of um, Prime Minister, well, I can't think of his name. Anyway, they were very much in power in the 1980s, in, in, in high positions. 
Uh, a lot of the people who were key in the reformist movement in the last 10 years were, say, vice ministers and things of that sort throughout the 1980s. Very involved in uh, some of the most radical aspects of the revolution, exporting the revolution, even uh, terrorist attacks abroad, things of that sort. They were also very leftist for the most part and were very much behind uh, efforts by the government in the 1980s to carry out various you know, quasi-socialist efforts uh, to redistribute wealth and things of that sort. Uh, the most interesting thing about these people played out in the mid-1990s, uh, actually precisely in the period that I had the opportunity to spend a lot of time in Iran. Uh, they underwent this transition beginning in the very early 1990s and, and uh, culminating in 1997, uh, very much like, I guess, the transition that a lot of other leftists made, particularly that, that they have made when they've become about age 40, and that is they became a lot more moderate. And so during the course of the early and mid-1990s, these people went from being fire-breathing, bomb-throwing, radical leftist Islamists to being much more moderate, mellow uh, advocates of democracy. And uh, it was a very interesting and, and profoundly important uh, transition that occurred. The other thing I'd say about these people that is very important to them as a movement is that they're very intellectual. Uh, a lot of these people went to grad school and got PhDs, many of them at University of Tehran, uh, in the early and mid-1990s. And so they are people who, who both had a great deal of direct experience in the revolution, mobilizing the revolution, and then leading the new revolutionary regime, so people with tremendous political experience, but also the academic experience uh, to complement that, that would give them uh, you know, a, a much broader perspective on what they were trying to do when they were leading the pro-democracy movement uh, beginning in 1997. So anyway, this is the movement that Khatami came out of and the people that uh, surrounded him and advised him uh, were of this sort. In 1997, uh, in May 1997, uh, there was a, a stunning uh, electoral change in Iran. Khatami, for some reason, was allowed to run in this election most people, including me, thought that uh, the conservative candidate would win, uh, but that did not happen. Khatami won this tremendous landslide election. He won 69% of the vote uh, in an election where the turnout rate was 84%. Uh, putting those figures together, 58% of the electorate supported Khatami in these elections in 1997. It was just tremendous popular support for him. Uh, his conservative opponents took only something like 25% of the electorate at that time. Uh, so when Khatami was elected, this was a confluence of, of two very important trends. First of all, he was the representative of uh, an extremely experienced and, and very intellectual and uh, you know, self-conscious uh, political movement that knew what it was doing, or at least should have known what it was doing. And secondly, this was a movement that was extremely popular. It had a tremendous popular base. And the first couple of years of Khatami movement were just full of exhilaration. Um, in the first few years, uh, the Khatami movement had uh, the wind at its back and, and made uh, a lot of very important victories. Most importantly, uh, after Khatami's election victory, they focused on uh, winning electoral control over several other institutions in Iran. 
Uh, the first came in 1999 when local council elections were held for the first time in Iran, and these reformists swept those elections. And they saw this as important because they saw these local councils in all the, uh, the towns in Iran as uh, sort of like breeding grounds where democratic activists could get initial experience with democracy and then start to move up uh, to higher office. Uh, in 2000, they won a very uh, bitterly contested election uh, and gained overwhelming control over the parliament, which is extremely important because you know, they thought that now with uh, the presidency in the hands of Khatami and the parliament in the hands of like-minded people, they would be able to do an awful lot. Uh, so their victory in parliament was roughly of the same magnitude as Khatami's victory, another landslide electoral victory. And then in 2001, Khatami was reelected again with a huge landslide victory. So the first four years then of the reformist movement uh, had tremendous momentum. And it really looked during this period, or at least during the beginning of this period, like there was a good chance that these people would be able to bring democracy to Iran. This began to change, though, uh, earlier. It really began to change I'd say within the first year after Khatami was elected. But, but most visibly, uh, in the context of the 2000 parliamentary elections, there were important changes. Uh, conservatives by this time had sort of figured out what to do and reorganized themselves. Uh, they very strongly contested those elections, tried to basically rig them and uh, do various uh, dirty things. Uh, in the end, they were not successful in doing that, and so after these elections, they began to act uh, much more aggressively, closing down newspapers, arresting prominent reformist leaders, and uh, even assassinating one of the key reformist leaders. Uh, so it, it really became visible in the spring and summer of 2000, a very strong conservative, basically, counterattack against the reformist movement. Uh, however, as I said, in uh, the summer of 2001, Khatami still won a strong re-election victory, so the conservative counterattack had not had uh, a big impact yet on public opinion. Uh, the real depressing period for the reformists began in 2003. In February 2003, there were again uh, municipal council elections, and the reformists were very badly trounced. Uh, the main problem there was that turnout was sharply lower, and many of the people who had voted for reformists in previous elections did not turn out, and therefore conservatives won a lot of the important municipal councils. Then in February 2004, the next uh, parliamentary elections, uh, reformists again were very badly beaten at the polls, and the conservatives regained control over parliament. And then the final blow to the reformist movement came this past summer, June 2005, when uh, the, the several reformist candidates and the key centrist candidate who ran against uh, the guy who eventually won, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, were decisively defeated. Uh, in the presidential election last summer, the three reformist candidates who were in the first round together won only 22% of the electorate a sh sharp, sharp decline from the 58% they had won eight years earlier. Um, this, again, was not a major conservative victory. The conservative candidates only took 25% of the electorate. So the conservatives had not really uh, increased uh, their share of, of the vote. It was more a matter of the vote being uh, dispersed and turnout being lower, mainly on the part of reformists. 
uh, in the second round, uh, the current president, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, uh, won a strong victory over the centrist candidate, Rafsanjani, who was the other uh, participant in the second round. And it was just a disastrous defeat for the reformists and uh, the centrists. Uh, basically, that was the end of the reform movement. Since then, it has not done anything. Uh, they're just sort of sitting around talking. Basically, the reform movement has collapsed. Uh, anyway, there are two important points uh, in what I've just said. First, the reform movement was initially very popular and seemed to almost all observers to have a good chance of bringing democracy to Iran. Certainly no guarantee, but uh, a good shot at it. And an awful lot of people really took it for granted that they would succeed, both people in Iran and people outside. Uh, the other main point uh, that I want to emphasize is that the reform movement was defeated not because the conservatives were somehow successful or became more popular. They didn't become more popular. The reform movement was defeated actually for much more dire reasons, and that is because it lost its popular support. A pro-democracy movement losing its popular support, going from 58% of the electorate in 1997 to 22% of the electorate in 2005, that's a disaster for a pro-democracy movement. So the question then, you know, if we're interested in understanding why the pro-democracy movement failed in Iran. The question is, why did the reformists lose their popularity? Uh, my view is that they lost their popularity because they pursued the wrong strategy. And so my explanation for the failure of the democracy movement in Iran is that they made strategic mistakes. So let me first explain why I think the prospects for democracy were very good and then secondly, explain what the strategic mistakes were that they made. So first of all, the prospects for democracy. Um, there, there, there are a lot of things that you could have pointed to, and people did point to in 1997, 98, 99, that would have made you quite optimistic uh, about the prospects for democracy in Iran. You know, basically, most, although not quite all, of the things that political scientists normally look for in trying to understand, you know, whether a country is, is a likely candidate for democracy, most of those things were pretty strong when Khatami first came to power. So let me just quickly run through a bunch of things. First of all, social and economic factors. Uh, Iran was then and is now uh, a middle-income country, uh, not tremendously wealthy by global standards, but certainly far wealthier than a lot of other countries that are democratic, like India, Mali, and various others. Uh, going Along with its middle-income status, it has a relatively well-educated population, uh, literacy standards, educational standards uh, at or above the average of middle-income countries, so a fairly literate population, a uh, fairly urbanized population, a uh, population with, by now, a fairly large middle class and working class, you know, precisely the kind of social bases that you would look for in a country uh, becoming democratic. Uh, also along these lines, a large youth population. There was a, a baby boom in the 70s and 80s. It began to come of age uh, at the time of the 1997 election. It was uh, very pro-democracy, very pro-reform, and it was very in touch with the outside world and the various trends that were playing out in the late 1990s. Um, 
Also, along the lines of ethnic factors, Iran is not a country, even though it's quite ethnically divided itself, it is not a country that has any kind of long-standing ethnic tensions or class tensions or religious tensions. It's a country that uh, does not have the kind of tensions, for example, that we see today in Iraq that are tearing Iraq apart and making democracy uh, almost impossible in Iraq. Uh, So the social and economic conditions in Iran were pretty conducive to democratization at that time. Secondly, historical conditions. In many ways, historical conditions also were very conducive to democracy in Iran. Uh, Iran is the first country outside of the Western world, or I guess I could say outside of the Western world in Latin America, that had a uh, constitution in 1906. So for 100 years, Iran has had a constitution. Uh, Back at that time in 1906, uh, the Constitution uh, was established because a pro-constitutional or we could say pro-democracy movement forced the monarchy to accept it. So 100 years ago, there was essentially a pro-democracy movement in Iran. There's not many other countries that you can say uh, that about. Since that time, uh, there have been a number of periods in Iran's history when uh, pro-democracy movements and fairly pluralistic um, periods existed. Uh, For a while after the 1906 Constitution was implemented, uh, very strongly again in the period from 1941 until 1953, again in the early 1960s, and then uh, in the period leading up to the revolution and the revolution itself in 1978-1979. These were all periods when you had strong pro-democracy movements and a lot of political pluralism in Iran. These all created, you know, expectations among Iranians that uh, political competition and pluralism, if not, you know, full-scale Western-style democracy, are important things. So certainly uh, by 1997 and really quite a bit earlier, there was a strong expectation among most Iranians that at least political pluralism, if not full-scale democracy, was appropriate. This had become part of the political culture of Iran, we could say. Another part of the political culture, you know, a lot of people say that Islam uh, is a religion that provides uh, poor foundations for democracy. I don't really buy that, but uh, it's, it's particularly inappropriate in the case of uh, Shiite Islam, which is the branch that Iran has. There are traditions in Shiism that are pluralistic, uh, having multiple religious leaders, for example, and having consensus among the clergy. So in some ways, Shiism contributes to a political culture in Iran that is pluralistic. Uh, Another very positive factor playing out in the 90s uh, was, of course, you know, what political scientists call the third wave or sometimes the fourth wave of democratization spreading across the world. Uh, This had begun in the 70s but was very profound in the 80s and 90s. From the point of view of Iran, uh, the region of the world that was most important was the collapse of communism in the Soviet Union and the movement toward democracy in uh, many, though not all, of the former Soviet republics and the Eastern European satellite states. Uh, Iranians watched this very carefully. Uh, The Soviet Union, of course, had bordered Iran. Um, There was a long history of, of intellectual and other exchange between the Soviet Union and Iran. And, of course, there were similarities between the Soviet sort of quasi-totalitarian system that collapsed in 91 and Iran's quasi-totalitarian system. So it it was particularly the collapse of the Soviet Union, but though uh, democratization more broadly in the world that had an impact on Iran. 
So historical factors were fairly conducive as well. Uh, one set of factors that has always been not very conducive to democracy, or I guess I could say conducive to authoritarianism, has been uh, that Iran has always had, and very much has these days, a powerful, intrusive state apparatus. Uh, two aspects of the Iranian state are particularly important. First of all, Iran uh, is a rentier state. It has a lot of oil revenue. This oil revenue does not go into the pockets of the Iranian people directly. It goes into the pockets of the Iranian government or the treasury and therefore becomes uh, something that the Iranian government can use for its own political purposes. This has been the case really since um, the mid-1960s. Um, it was very important for the Shah before the revolution. Uh, and, of course, it's been somewhat up and down since the early 1980s, but when oil revenue has been high, as it is these days, uh, that has been uh, something that the government could use very much to diffuse unrest and re reduce popular pressure for change in Iran. Secondly, the other aspect of the Iranian state apparatus is that the revolutionaries who seized power in 1979 built uh, a very powerful security apparatus. Uh, the security apparatus since then has, has largely been in the hands of conservatives. Uh, it's not a highly repressive system. Iran is not a country where people live in fear. Uh, there's not severe repression of the sort that existed in Iraq under Saddam or that kind of thing. But the security apparatus is very effective. And in fact, this, it's almost an indication of how effective it is that it doesn't need to be repressive. It's very good at keeping a lid on things. So uh, certainly the nature of, of the state apparatus is something that is not conducive to democracy in Iran. But on balance, you know, these are pretty positive factors. And if you put these factors that I've just mentioned, social and historical factors, together with the circumstances under which Khatami came to power, tremendous popular support uh, and uh, leading a movement that was very politically sophisticated, uh, most observers believe that there was a, a good possibility that Iran could become democratic at that time. So conditions were right. So then the question becomes, why did they fail? Why did the uh, pro-democracy movement under Khatami fail to achieve its goal? Well, that brings me then to the central part of what I want to talk about that, uh, today, and that is uh, the strategic mistakes that the reformists made. When the reformists came to power, uh, their key political resource was that they were very popular. You know, 58% of the electorate uh, supporting a political movement is almost unheard of in the world. I mean, 58% of the electorate don't even vote in the United States, or, you know, not all of them. I mean, we have typically 40, 50% turnout rates, so there's no way of getting 58% of the electorate to vote for you in the United States. And there certainly hasn't been a president who's come anywhere near that any time in U.S. history, at least not that I'm aware of. Um, so that was a really, really powerful uh, force that the pro-democracy movement had. There were basically two main things that they could do with their tremendous popularity, or in other words, two main strategies that they could pursue in making use of their tremendous popular support and translating that popular support into political power. The first was, uh, of course, these are sort of two ideal types and there were various possibilities in between, but there are two main things, two main strategies the reformers could have pursued. The first was to mobilize their supporters in the streets in a mass movement, roughly like 
uh, you know, the rose revolution and orange revolution and pink revolution that we've seen and other brightly colored revolutions, velvet revolution, uh, that we've seen uh, in recent decades, particularly in the former Soviet bloc countries. In these cases, uh, pro-democracy activists, one way or another, mobilized mass movements in the streets that were just so large and so strong that they overwhelmed the anti-democracy forces in power and forced them to accept democratization. Uh, so this is one strategy that the Khatami people could have pursued. It would have begun with students. Students were uh, the central core of uh, Khatami's um, supporters. And then, you know, once the students had been fully mobilized, presumably it would have spread to other sectors of society, the urban middle class and others. Secondly, they could have taken a more restrained approach. Instead of mobilizing a confrontational mass movement in the street, they could have used this tremendous popularity they had to win a series of elections, uh, take control of these various elected offices, and then use those offices to carry out democratization more or less from inside of the state apparatus. Initially, they, they basically pursued a combination of both of these strategies. In, in the first two years after Khatami was elected, there was some mass mobilization and there were a fair number of demonstrations and things of that sort uh, and efforts by the reformists to, to stir things up. But they never really got too far. These mobilizational efforts ultimately were limited uh, and, and presumably uh, for very deliberate reasons. Uh, in any case, they abandoned pursuing both strategies and opted to pursue solely the second strategy uh, in the immediate aftermath of July 1999, which was really a key turning point. In July 1999, a bunch of Tehran University students uh, had some fairly innocuous demonstrations focusing on the closure of a popular newspaper. Uh, the security forces attacked these demonstrations very brutally. This triggered six days of very intense rioting. Um, and it created a situation where Khatami had to do something. Uh, in the middle of this rioting, Khatami was uh, presented uh, with the real possibility that the security forces would carry out a coup against him uh, unless he stopped these riots and demonstrations. And so in the end, he did. He turned his back on the rioters, condemned them, and then from that time on, Khatami and the other leaders of this movement uh, really uh, backed away from efforts to mobilize people in the streets, opposed it, and you know, uh, just simply stopped pursuing that strategy and focused only on the electoral strategy. Uh, so July 1999 was a key turning point in their strategy. They even had a name for this strategy. They called it active calm, the idea being that you know, we will uh, try to carry out our goals in a calm, i.e. non-confrontational way. They did this for three main reasons. So that, you know, they, they thought a lot about this, and there was a tremendous amount of discussion about this. Uh, there were three main reasons that led them to opt for a non-confrontational active calm strategy. First of all, they were not at all confident that the Iranian people could be mobilized, that they would respond uh, if uh, the reformists called for you know, mass demonstrations in the street. Uh, certainly, a few tens of thousands of students would respond. There was no question about that. But there was a lot of doubt, and this was talked about all the time in Iran, um, about whether demonstrations would spread beyond the core of activist students 
to other young people and more importantly to you know the, the broader urban middle class. There was a lot of doubt about that. The general idea, which you know people talked about all the time in this period, was that Iranians did not want to have another revolution. You know, uh, people who were not very happy with the regime, the main supporters of Khatami, had seen what happened with the revolution in 1978-1979. It created a lot of chaos and really set Iran back in many, many ways from the point of view of most of these people. Most Iranians were not really willing to go through something like this again or even risk it happening. So there was real doubt whether a mass movement could be mobilized. Secondly, and related to this, there was a lot of concern that the conservatives would really clamp down. And in fact, you know, as I said, they had threatened in July 1999 to carry out a coup. Uh, and so it, there was a lot of concern on the part of the reformists that if they organized a mass movement, particularly if it didn't get very big, you know, or if it was only slow to develop because Iranians were reluctant to join it, then the conservatives would come in massively with the security forces, mow people down in the street, arrest people by the thousands, crush this movement, and leave things much worse than they currently were. So fear of repression, even though this was not a highly repressive system, but everybody knew that the security forces were capable of, of, of being very brutal if necessary, and uh, very few reformists wanted to risk that. Thirdly, uh, they believed that uh, the electoral route uh, could succeed, that by gaining control over key elected institutions, especially the parliament, which in July 1999 was the next objective, that they could then use the parliament and the presidency to bring about democracy from within. So, you know, these are the main factors that led them to opt for this non-confrontational strategy of active comp. Um, this strategy failed in the end, uh, I would say, for three main reasons. First of all, uh, it turned out that the presidency and the parliament were weak institutions. Uh, I won't go into the details now. I can if you want. But um, basically, Iran has a, an unusual constitutional system that creates very elaborate checks and balances and in particular enables certain unelected bodies that are dominated by Islamist clerics to have uh, pretty much veto power over the presidency and the parliament. So the presidency and parliament do not have nearly the kind of power that they have in the U.S. or most other countries because of these checks and balances. That was not so apparent in uh, 1999 or early 2000, but it has become very apparent since then. These are weak institutions and therefore not institutions that are really capable of bringing democracy to Iran. Secondly, um, a number of important parts of the state apparatus are not under the control of the presidency or of the parliament, uh, especially the security forces, most of which are under the control of the supreme leader, uh, Ayatollah Khamenei, who is more or less a conservative, and also the judicial apparatus. Um, and so what that means is that conservatives control key parts of the state apparatus that they can use to, in various ways, neutralize uh, the reformist regime, arresting people, cracking down on people in the streets, or prosecuting people and putting them in jail. Uh, thirdly, and really the key, uh, third key reason why the reformist movement failed is that and this was something that was not at all apparent at the time. You know, back in 1999, 2000, the reformists had this kind of invincible 
uh, self-image. They thought that they were very popular, their popularity would remain, you know, indefinitely, and they could, you know, just continue working gradually to bring about change. Well, that turned out not to be the case. Uh, as the conservatives became more and more effective in blocking the reformists and preventing them from doing anything, Iranians became disenchanted. And you could see this year after year in 2000, 2001, 2002. The talk in Tehran was that Khatami is powerless. He can't do anything. These guys are a bunch of wimps. They're all talk, no action. And so in this period, you know, from conversations here and there, you could see quite easily that public opinion was becoming very disillusioned with the reformists and with Khatami in particular. In fact, Khatami uh, started to be booed in public and this sort of thing. He openly talked about not running again in 2001 because he realized that his popularity was slipping. Uh, turned out it hadn't slipped so much by then, but it certainly right after uh, his second election, it, it did very much. Anyway, this had two main consequences. First of all, of course, their popularity plummeted. Uh, and in the 2003, 2004, and 2005 elections, as I said, uh, the reformists were decisively defeated and humiliated. You know, pro-democracy movements uh, losing the vote and anti-democracy movements essentially winning. Geez, what kind of a situation is that? Secondly, the reformist movement began to fracture as a result of this. You know, many key reformist leaders, particularly among students, uh, began to be disillusioned with the passive approach of Khatami and other and, and the mainstream of the reformist leadership, and some began to break uh, with uh, the mainstream reformist leadership. And so you had a, a fracturing of the reformist movement, and today it's just in pieces all over the floor. So for these three reasons, then, uh, the strategy of active calm basically failed. Again, mainly because uh, the popularity of the reformist movement just deteriorated. Uh, of course, that doesn't at all mean that a more, confrontation, a more con confrontational approach would have worked. And, you know, we have to be careful, you know, not to fall into the trap of thinking that just because one thing fails doesn't mean that the opposite succeeds. Uh, of course, the main danger of the confrontational approach was the danger that loomed in July 1999 that the conservatives would crack down, they would carry out a coup or something like that. Certainly for every one of these brightly colored revolutions that occurs, there's a Tiananmen Square uh, where there's a massive crackdown and a democracy movement is snuffed out. So that might well have happened. But in any case, you know, we've seen that uh, the passive active calm approach didn't work. Um, uh, you, you certainly can't dismiss out of hand that a more confrontational approach would have worked. I think in particular, if the Khatami people had begun from the very beginning to mobilize people, from May 1997 when Khatami was first elected, really start to get people out in the streets, get to the point where they can call hundreds of thousands of people into the streets, which they could easily have done if they had worked for a few months after May 1997. If they had been able to do that before the conservatives got their act together and reorganized, uh, they might well have been able to pull off a brightly colored revolution. Uh, going slowly and then abandoning this confrontational approach was the wrong way to go. So I'm not at all claiming that confrontation would have worked. It certainly is dangerous, but uh, in any case, it's, it's quite clear that the more passive approach didn't work. Okay, so then finally, what conclusions can we draw from this for understanding democratization more broadly? Uh, let me begin by saying I'm not so up on this literature as I was eight or ten years ago. Um, so uh, 
this may not be the most sophisticated presentation of this, but anyway, let me go forward and say a few things. Um, of course, the idea that strategy matters in democratization is not at all new. Since the mid-'80s, uh, a key part of the democracy literature has emphasized not structural factors like social structural conditions or historical conditions, but political process factors, including especially the strategies that pro-democracy and also anti-democracy factions take. So focusing on strategy and you know, correct choice of strategy as a, a determinant of, of the success of democratization is not at all new. Um, and in fact, there's been a lot of literature on this. Most of this literature has focused on countries that succeeded with democratization, virtually all of it. Uh, so a, a lot of people have studied what strategies are appropriate and especially have focused on this, uh, this uh, issue that I've been emphasizing here. Should we pursue a passive or a confrontational approach to promoting democratization? This has been in the literature for 20 years now. But for the most part, people have studied countries that succeeded. And so their focus has been on how uh, confrontation or passivity affects not the prospects for democracy succeeding, but how it affects the, uh, the new democratic regime that is established. Or to put it in political science terminology, the focus has been on how these strategic issues affect the prospects for the consolidation of democracy several years later, rather than for the earlier step, the transition to democracy. Um, so this is, an, it is not a new approach, but you know, looking at a country where democratization failed is, is fairly novel, and important conclusions can be drawn from it. Uh, let me draw two in particular that can kind of flesh out some of the conceptual stuff surrounding these issues and per perhaps be of use in other countries. First of all, as I've been emphasizing here, uh, the choice of which strategy is not something that leaders can just take you know, out of free will. Uh, Hatemi and the other people in 1999-2000 who were talking constantly and thinking about what to do, you know, they felt that they were very constrained by prevailing conditions. Um, and so uh, the choice of strategy is, is just simply not something that you can look at by itself, independent of the context within which that choice is made. You really have to look very much at the context. Uh, or to, to take that a step further, what you have to look at is the context, the prevailing conditions that leaders are looking at to make decisions on what strategy to pursue, and also the way they evaluate those prevailing conditions. Uh, and so I've emphasized, and let me just briefly run through them again, a number of contextual conditions that were very important in the Iranian case that very much influenced this decision to pursue a rather passive strategy. First of all, the state of public opinion, first and foremost. Uh, the reformist leaders knew very much uh, what Iranians were thinking and talking about. They had their hands very much on the pulse. They knew that while the Iranian people were broadly speaking in favor of democratization, that they, they were not strongly in favor of it. They were not willing to take big risks. Not many Iranians were willing to die for democracy and get up there like the, the guy in Beijing in 1989 and stand in front of the tanks. Not many Iranians were willing to do that. So there was broad support for democratization, but fairly shallow support for democratization. And thus, a strategy of confrontation looked a lot less attractive. 
secondly, uh, of course, there was a very important idiosyncratic historical condition, which would not apply in many other countries, and that is the relative recency of the revolution. Iranians in the, in the late 1990s uh, still were very much aware of what had happened in 1979 and how the revolution had mushroomed and gone in directions that many of them uh, regretted. So this, you know, unique circumstance that this was uh, a country still living in the aftermath of a profound revolution and one that had gone uh, in unexpected directions very much bared on, uh, uh, on decision-making at this time. Thirdly, again, as I've emphasized before, the strength of the opposition. The, the threat of a coup against the Khatami movement in 1999 was very much hanging over everything here. And then finally, institutional factors, the character of Iranian political institutions, especially the weakness of the presidency and the parliament, as I've emphasized, and the fact that the security forces and other bodies were in the hands of conservatives. So these contextual circumstances are very important. Uh, context very much shapes the decision to adopt a strategy. So you don't want to just look at strategy by itself, but also the context that leads people to uh, pursue it. The other main conclusion I want to draw, and this is the last thing I'm going to talk about, is, um, is the following. Uh, much of the literature in the, much of the democratization literature that has focused on strategy has come to the conclusion that uh, accommodative strategies, or rather passive strategies, non-confrontational strategies, are the best. The main reason that they conclude that is that a lot of them have done, you know, very careful, persuasive argument uh, analyses of uh, the aftermath of confrontational versus accommodative strategies of democratization. And the consensus is that once a democratic regime has been established, conditions are, are much better, much more conducive to the successful consolidation of democracy if an accommodative strategy rather than a confrontational strategy had been pursued. A confrontational approach uh, to uh, pr uh, promoting democracy sows the seeds of problems in the uh, new democratic regime. So the general consensus in the literature is that confrontational approaches to, to democratization are a bad idea. But as I've been emphasizing, this is, is based mainly on an evaluation of what happened after the democratic regime was established and it was made on the basis of uh, confrontational approaches that succeeded. Um, <clears throat> so this kind of points to a paradox, and this is the last thing I'm going to say. Uh, you know, I, I more or less accept this idea that a confrontational approach to democracy sort of leaves unresolved problems in the new democratic regime that, that then crop up and create political problems in the new democratic regime. You see this in a few of the countries that had these brightly colored revolutions. Kyrgyzstan, Georgia, Ukraine have been having quite serious problems in the last couple of years after confrontational movements brought uh, democracy in the form of brightly colored revolutions to these countries. Um, so, and the case of Iran, you know, more or less goes in the same direction. Without confrontation, democratic transition may well fail, at least under certain contextual circumstances. So that leaves us with sort of a paradox, and this is the last thing, I just want to throw this out. Uh, there's a paradox involved in, this, the strat in sort of the, your strategic approach to democratization. What is good for the, the post-democratic transition period may not be very successful for democratic transition, or to put this more clearly, 
in some cases, a confrontational approach may be best for achieving a democratic transition. That's been my argument about Iran. That seems to have been the case in you know, Georgia, Kyrgyzstan, and some of these other countries. But a confrontational approach, while it may be good at achieving democratic transition, may then create conditions in the new democracy that make it harder for that democracy to consolidate. So there may be a, a paradox. What's good at one stage of democratization may be bad at the other stage. Thank you. We have about 15 minutes for questions. And I think I'll he's going to throw out some. Do it himself. Yeah, I think so. I'm not sure that outside forces could have really been very decisive, but there's more the U.S. could have done. Uh, I thought so at the time, and I certainly think so in retrospect. Um, you know, uh, again, timing is really important. Timing is part of this context. If, if you, you take the right decision at the right time, uh, you may be able to do something. If you wait too long, uh, you may not. Uh, the Clinton administration basically waited until about a year after Khatami was elected to embrace Khatami and to uh, try to push for rapprochement with Iran. Uh, it took them a long time. There was a lot of internal uh, debate and, you know, studies done and, you know, the, the sort of slow creaking of the foreign policy bureaucracy in Washington finally came around. And in the end, the Clinton administration was pretty aggressive in trying to help Khatami and trying to make deals with Khatami that would have helped them. And they had a very good understanding of all this. Um, but. I think they were too slow and they were offering too little. Um, you know, I, I think that they needed to jump on the Khatami bandwagon in the first few months, you know, really in the summer of 1997 or in the fall of 1997. Uh, if they had done so at that time, it could really have helped Khatami politically. He could have said, look, the Americans are suddenly being much more conciliatory toward us. I, Khatami, am getting all these great concessions out of the Americans, and this would have helped them a lot domestically. But they didn't do it quickly enough. Um, there were some key events in December 97, January 98. You may remember the CNN interview with Christiane Amanpour and then the response to that. Um, they sort of waited too, too long uh, to do something about that. I mean, the things they did in the end were appropriate mm -hmm. steps, but they were not taken at the right time. I also think they probably should have done more. It's not entirely clear what they offer the Khatami people. I've talked to some of the key people who were involved, Martin Indyk, for example, who was in charge of U.S. Middle East policy at the time. I've talked to him about this and a few others, and they say they put everything on the table uh, in end to all the sanctions and, you know, we'll do anything. Let's make a big deal. Uh, I, I'm not sure that the Iranians necessarily got that message, but it may also be that by that time, you know, 2000, uh, the Khatami people couldn't really respond. But, you know, more broadly, while external factors often do have an important impact and sometimes a huge impact on democratization or other domestic events, this is not a case where they really could have had too much of an effect, I think. Um, you know, Iranians are very leery of outside influence, especially U.S. influence. Um, and Iran is a fairly you know, autonomous country. You know, the barriers are pretty big. Influences don't really come in that strongly. This was mostly being driven by domestic dynamics, I think. Troops in two of its neighbors, special ops in 
are those issues, the existence of those troops, are they used by the conservatives in Iran politically? Oh, yeah. So yeah. Are they, do they have salience? Uh, how do they resonate with the population? Yeah, see, the, the, real, the main danger of outside forces, especially the U.S., trying to influence events in Iran is that it really creates a, a strong counter-reaction. The conservatives use this, and they get all xenophobic and, you know, sort of populist and bombastic and say, oh, the American imperialists, they're trying to overthrow us, they're doing this, they're doing that, and this really riles up their core supporters. I don't think it riles up that many Iranians, but it certainly riles up their core supporters um, and can be more harmful. I think the U.S. can have significant, you know, maybe even fairly substantial influence, but it has to be very carefully designed. Uh, especially designed in ways that will not create a counter-reaction among Iranians and not create a situation where the conservatives can take advantage of this uh, to be demagogic in the, in the way they like to do. You know, the, the great Satan rhetoric. They, they love to play the great Satan card, you know. It's a good card. I love to watch it play. But. Uh, yes. Yeah, well, yes and no. Keep in mind that in, in the 2000 parliamentary election, the Council of Guardian tried to essentially nullify the reformist victory, and they were forced to back down. So it's not that the Council of Guardians is all powerful, but yeah, I, I would I would basically agree that well, I'd say probably Khamenei's position, the supreme leader, is somewhat more powerful. But the Council of Guardians is a key institution that the conservatives use to block what the reformists want. No question about that. It is very powerful. It's a major part of the problem. It's, it's a body which we don't really have an equivalent of in the United States. I mean, in some ways, it's kind of like part of the role of the Supreme Court in the U.S., but really, in the end, it's far different. It's a body consisting of six clerics and, and six lay people who can essentially veto anything the parliament wants to do, although there's also a body that can veto what it does. Um, but it, it's very powerful, and it also oversees elections. Rick? Yeah, well, <laughs> I agree with you on that. Um, I, first of all, let me say that... It certainly has democratic features, and these are important points. Let me first say that, you know, what the reformists wanted uh, was pretty much what everybody in this room would agree 
is full-scale democracy, you know, minimizing the role of the Council of Guardians and the Supreme Leader, you know, the, the main institutions that can veto, putting the security forces under the control of elected leaders, freedom of the press, freedom of speech, completely free elections, all these kinds of things. That's what the reformists wanted. So obviously they didn't achieve those things. They were trying to get that. They were going for what we would all agree is more or less full-scale democracy. They probably wouldn't have gotten all that. It would have been sort of Iranian-style Islamic democracy, but it would have been pretty good. Um, so they didn't achieve it. What Iran has is really an odd mixture of democracy and authoritarianism. There are important elements of democracy in Iran, and they were on display last summer in the presidential election. Um, there is, though, considerable manipulation of these elections. You know, lots of candidates are vetoed. In the presidential election last summer, 8,000 candidates were vetoed. That's a lot of vetoing. Um, and, you know, the, the various reformists who would have had a real shot at getting elected, who were genuinely popular, they knew that they would be vetoed. So none of them really even put their hats in the ring. So the ability of the Guardian Council to veto candidates is, you know, a, a fundamental anti-democratic, non-democratic feature of elections in Iran. There's also quite a bit of harassment of the press. Uh, there's harassment of, of politicians if they go too far, they're thrown in jail or this or that. Um, you know, so it's a mixture of democracy and authoritarianism. It really is. But you're right. Uh, you know, the Iranian people did vote the reformists out of power in these three elections in 2003, 2005. Well, they, they had, in fact, this has been going on for, for several decades. There have been cycles. You can go back to the 96 election, the 92 election, and others in the 80s. It, it didn't just start, you know, with Khatami. Uh, it's really gone back and forth. You know, in the end, the Iranian people are really pretty bizarre. And if anybody can explain to me, the Iranians in the room, the electoral behavior of the Iranian people, I haven't gone into that, you know, they, they deserve a Nobel Prize. Um, but that's another story. But yes, you know, the paradox here is the pro-democracy movement was voted out of office. What can you do? You know? Rick. Well, um, you know, I was very clear in saying that it had a better chance. I mean, in retrospect, I think a confrontational strategy had a better, I would say, substantially better chance than this accommodative strategy. But it, certainly I can't guarantee that it would have worked. The reason I say that is the contextual conditions, which I've been dwelling on here, uh, were, I think, quite conducive to that, especially the reformist overwhelming popularity. You know, when you have 58% of the entire electorate 
in your camp, and, and especially young people, very, or at least many young people, very enthusiastically in favor of it, you can do something with that kind of overwhelming popular support. You can bring those kind of people, if you work at it. I mean, you don't just call for people all of a sudden to be out in the street next Thursday and a million people are there. You have to, over a period of time, maybe even as little as weeks, but more likely months, you have to mobilize a movement. I mean, that's what's happened in these other cases. It's possible to build a movement, especially when you've got this tremendous popularity. Um, it had happened in Iran before, the revolution, of course, 1978, 1979. That's exactly what happened. This was a movement that came almost from nowhere, at least in terms of its, its popular base. And in, in the space of a year, you had going from no demonstrations to demonstrations of three or four or five million people. Um, and the Hatami people had been instrumental in mobilizing that, so that they had, you know, 20 years earlier mobilized such a movement. They knew how to do it. Of course, that means that the conservatives had some good insights into how to stop it as well. Um, in the end, but I can't guarantee. No doubt. Right. Uh, it would have had to have been done very carefully. But, you know, you know these brightly colored revolutions of, of recent decades, beginning with the Velvet Revolution in, in Czechoslovakia, um, have, you know, been very avowedly uh, nonviolent. Uh, you know, they've organized their cadres in, in very clear ways to emphasize nonviolence. Mm -hmm. Uh, their slogans and their goals have been, you know, democracy and, you know, sort of peace and prosperity for everyone, not, you know, we must overthrow and kill the Shah, something like that. So I think, uh, of course, I can't really present evidence of this, but my, my view is that, you know, a, an artfully done or carefully done job of mobilizing people in that kind of a way had a decent chance of succeeding. But it's a counterfactual. I can't, you know, really prove it. I mean, the one set of proof that I can offer is, you know, the comparative perspective of these other cases where that's been successful. There have been a number, but I can't guarantee that it would have worked in Iran. I think we have time for just one more question. Yeah, following on the two of you, maybe. Since you're competing with each other. Following on Rick, the last time I would have referred to your talk was the need to control the security apparatus. And the cases where These are very important points. <clears throat> uh, there are a number of things that I would say about this. First of all, th this was the central focus of discussion about these issues back then in 98, 99, 2000. Um, people had done or at least kept citing surveys indicating that uh, much of the rank and file of the security forces, especially the Revolutionary Guards, 
uh, had voted for Khatami in 97, and then, you know, the same thing was done in some of the subsequent elections. So there was very considerable reason to believe that a lot of the security forces, at, at least at the lower levels, certainly not at the top levels, were sympathetic to the reformist movement. Um, secondly, the reformists did focus on this. Uh, the main uh, achievement they had along these lines was to wrench control of the intelligence ministry away from the conservatives. So this occurred after the serial killings of late 1998. Um, so I guess earlier, mid-99, there was a change in the, the, the head of that ministry. Previously, it had been more or less a conservative uh, and then subsequently a very progressive pro Khatami person was put in charge, and then he went about purging that ministry and apparently went quite far. And this is quite important. I'm talking about the, the secret police, basically. Uh, it, in fact, it went so far that the judiciary organized its own sort of parallel secret police, presumably mostly consisting of people who had been fired from the real secret police. So there was a lot of focus on the security forces, and, and that was... The crucial issue, you know, will the security forces be loyal to their commanders who are conservatives, or, you know, will they defect? But, you know, again, this is a matter of strategy. The strategy for confronting potentially hostile security forces is really appeal to them and go up there, you remember from the 60s, put flowers in, you know, their gun barrels and that sort of thing. And that would have been the most difficult thing for the reformists to do, but there's reason to think that they could have succeeded with that if they had been careful, had the right slogans, the right approach to doing that. You know, it's not out of the question. Thank you very much, uh, Mark. I, I'm reminded uh, also of the last speaker we had on Iran said something that in the long run is maybe, uh, uh, what's his name, Sarul Galam? Sarul Galam. Sarul Galam said, said something that seemed in the long run optimistic. I mean, where Mark is leaving us is with the uh, reformist movement kind of on flat on its back. I can't imagine where it's going to go. Uh, but what he said uh, in answer to one of our questions, I think, was that the people of Iran are not in favor of the revolution. The revolution is over as far as the great majority of the population of Iran is concerned. He said, with another Iranian view, somebody who is working and teaching in Iran uh, today, it's only the leadership who holds to this old view. And so what that suggests is that the, the, what was pushing the reformists uh, from the 90s onward continues in the population, and we will see it come back, and then the issues of strategy become uh, prominent again. But they're also not strongly against the revolution. That's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll let you have the last word for the moment. Uh, thank you all very much. Thank you. No more than ideology. Huh? No more than ideology. No surprise. Yeah, I'm not really into ideology. We have about 10 minutes left. Okay, fine. You're a sociologist. You should, it should be social forces, right? One of that's the major reason they think.